Thank you for listening to the Well Read Christian Podcast. I'm Mark Stanley, your host, and today we're going to step into part two of developing a Christian philosophy of aesthetics, which is the arts. Today we examine C.S. Lewis's book, An Experiment in Criticism, as Lewis breaks down how to appreciate literature, how to judge literature, and what literature does for us. Even though Lewis is focused on literature, I'm going to extrapolate his ideas to include all art, and then draw some useful implications of Lewis's view, which I think you'll find interesting. Last episode, we talked about whether aesthetic judgments are fundamentally subjective preference, or if they have some basis in the objective world. We talked about three theories for understanding art, the subjective, the relative, and the objective. The subjectivistic view is that beauty is essentially just pleasure. And since different people receive pleasure from different art, there are no ways to make objective or true statements critiquing art. Good art is just art that you like, and bad art is just art that you don't like. So art is like Diet Coke or a good back scratch. The relativistic view says that there are measurable standards to say one thing is better than another, but only in closed systems, such as a relative culture or discipline. So a song may be popular and therefore good today, but only relative to a certain group of people. Like relativistic ethics, where right and wrong is decided upon by a vote, aesthetic relativism is when aesthetic judgments are determined by an elite few, or perhaps a vote of the masses, depending on your variation. In the world of aesthetic philosophy, this view is also called institutionalism. On institutionalism, good art is whatever the experts say that it is. And then finally, there is objectivism, which I argued is the only view which can account for a robust vision of beauty. I argued that beauty shows up in a variety of forms, sometimes in this painting or that one, or this dish or that piece of music, or that book or this poem, but beauty is not just in the brain. Beauty is something which transcends personal preference, culture, and time eras, because that's what art does. Art offers a transcendent experience which pierces personal preference, culture, and time to deliver beauty from soul to soul in a way that is impactful and important. That is why, after all, we can appreciate art that we've never seen before, from a culture we've never lived in, in a time period that we don't even understand. The reason for this is that all art expresses the mannishness of man. Art is a human expression of beauty, which is intrinsically valuable, rather than valuable for some other goal or aim. An advertisement is usually repulsive, because the images are serving the goal of trying to sell you something, rather than standing for their beauty alone. We also said that art is essentially an intentional transformation of non-mannish manner into mannish matter, matter which reflects human nature and character back to us. We got these insights from Francis Schaeffer, the Christian thinker of the 20th century, who we will examine more in detail next episode. But in this episode, we're going to develop a philosophy of beauty and art more fully, and we're going to do that with the tremendous help from none other than C.S. Lewis, who carries a lot of the weight of my Christian philosophy of art and beauty. But before we continue, please go to our social media outlets on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Like, follow, and subscribe to support our project. Leave a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have benefited from the podcast or believe in our mission, please consider making a tax-deductible donation to support our work on our website, wellreadchristian.com. There, you will also find interesting quotes, sources, articles, and more available free of charge. These are tough times for all of us, and if your contribution would cause any amount of financial pressure, please do not even consider it. But for those who are willing and able to give, 
It is because of your gift that the podcast can continue and even grow. The foremost thinker who has had a tremendous impact on my aesthetic philosophy is C.S. Lewis, and I'm going to come right out of the gate with him and how he addresses the subjective-objective paradox. Last episode, I pointed out that everyone who wants to think seriously about aesthetics and art and beauty has to grapple with the two indisputable realities, which seem to be opposed in a paradox. The first is that there is such a wide diversity in art, as well as art appreciation. There are some people who hate classical music, and their whole library is full of rap. There are others who like 80s rock, or smooth jazz, or heavy metal. All kinds of different people are extremely passionate about completely different styles of music, and that's just music. There is so much diversity in painting, or film, or theater, or sculpting, or you name it. So there's the problem of diversity, and we talked about how the subjectivist tailors their view to make sense of this problem. But there's another side to the coin, and that is competency, hierarchy, and discrimination. First, there is a range of things which can be called music, and other things which are just noise. Nobody enjoys listening to the squeaky brakes of a semi-truck, or a bunch of cardboard boxes falling from a balcony, or a chainsaw's buzz right outside a window. So there's discrimination there. We, we can discern between art and not art. Furthermore, within the realm of art, it seems as though some art really is more profound and interesting and valuable than other pieces of art. It's simply a fact that some art is more influential than other art. But if subjectivism is true, there is no such thing as competency or quality or really art at all. And that just doesn't seem possible. So the objectivist tailors his view to rescue competency, quality, and discrimination, and taste, but then he has a difficult time accounting for the wide variety of artistic expression and appreciation. If appreciation is objective, why is there so much disparity? But if it is subjective, why is there competency and hierarchy? Why can we distinguish between art and non-art at all? By the way, notice that the subjectivist view, taken to the extreme, does have a really hard time distinguishing from art and non-art. That's why you have all the hilarious stories of someone taking their glasses off and putting them on the floor, and people thinking that it's an art exhibit in a museum, and taking pictures. That happened back in 2016. Or Maurizio Catalan's duct-taped banana to a wall, and he called it comedian, and sold it to an art museum or excuse me, to, to an art connoisseur, for $120,000. <laughs> I am dead serious. Look it up. People, people were crying about it, talking about how profound it is that the banana, it, it represents bananaism. It, it just, that's what it represents. It represents what it means to be a banana. <laughs> it's so ridiculous. Anyways, the, the, the trouble of the, of the subjective and the objective in art really troubled me as a young thinker. I saw clearly that there was something going on in music appreciation, for example, which was much deeper than most people even realized. Everyone enjoys the music that they listen to for reasons which they can describe and can actually be analyzed. Yet despite this, not everybody enjoys it, even though it objectively merits approval. I came up with a theory to remedy the paradox of diversity and objectivity. I thought, what if beauty is in almost all music, and in all art, really, but it's only experienced by those who have a taste for it? So beauty is widespread, but not everyone can see it. That explains why some art is better than other art, because there are still objective criterion for good, better, and best, but it also explains why there's diversity in opinion, 
because people's subjective experience of it is different. I touched on this at the end of my last episode. I may prefer this painting and you may prefer that one. Both have intrinsic beauty as great pieces of art. But for whatever reason, I can see beauty in this piece and I'm passionate about it. And you see beauty in that piece and you're really passionate about it. So, we can say that beauty is objective and perception is subjective. We can each see beauty more clearly in our own unique perspectives. Great idea, right? Well, it turns out that I wasn't the first. C.S. Lewis beat me to the punch about 50 years ago when he published his book titled An Experiment in Criticism. Literary criticism is the field in English which seeks to appreciate and critique literature. And when I read it, I went, oh, you've got to be kidding me. My first great idea that I thought was totally original, and of course C.S. Lewis already has an entire book on it. That's how it is with most great ideas, by the way. You stumble upon something you think is brilliant, and it turns out that someone else already thought about it way before you, and they've articulated 10 arguments, and anticipated 15 objections, and written 30 counter-objections. It's really, really hard to think of something new, and it's very arrogant to assume that you have. Now, to be fair, Lewis doesn't articulate his ideas exactly the way that I did. His was much better and more interesting. But we both make the same first move, which is to say that even though it is true that the quality of art is objective, the focus of discussion should be on our subjective experience of it. Lewis says that maybe it's not helpful to look at the contents of a book with rules and principles in mind, to rank certain qualities and draw strict conclusions. Maybe it's more helpful to ask what the book does in the mind and hearts of its readers. So the relevant question is not, does this book adhere to my strict standards of what makes a work good? Instead, the question becomes, does this book inspire a certain kind of experience? And then we can say that a work of art is good depending on how deeply those readers enjoy it, and on how many readers across time and culture also receive that same level of joy. To explain what he means, Lewis separates all readers into literary and unliterary readers. An unliterary reader is someone who reads just to pass the time. They absolutely never read a book they have already read before. Why would they? They already read it. They treat books like newspapers. They want the gist of it, and then once they've read it, they're not interested in it anymore. They read as a last resort if there's something else better to do, or perhaps they treat it like eating their vegetables. It's just a healthy part of their routine. They don't at all expect what they read to be important or impactful, and they're only ever looking for mere entertainment. After the unliterary reader finishes the book, perhaps he's interested in a small chat about it, but he sees it as unfashionable to still be talking about the work after it is no longer popular. The unliterary reader might read great works because of their cultural importance, or to appear educated, or even for the intellectual content, but they don't really care for the work itself. On the other hand, literary readers are exactly the opposite. They cherish their favorite works, reading and rereading it several times throughout their life, and dwelling on their favorite passages. They consider their time spent reading as essential and guard the valuable hours with a book in a corner. They consider reading an important part of their life, like finding love or pursuing religion. The things they read change them, or at least give them new thoughts and new perspectives. And finally, the literary reader wants to share their discoveries, savor their favorite lines, and adore their favorite scenes. They want to think about their favorite characters and their favorite authors, reminiscing often, again and again, and at length. The unliterary person looks at the literary one and does not accuse them of liking the wrong books, 
but of making such a big fuss about any books at all. With these two categories from Lewis in mind, I would like to expand this to include every type of art appreciator, because I think his descriptions go way beyond literature. There are people who obsess over movies, and others who just want to catch a flick. There are some who might stroll through an art museum once in their life, and others who have memberships and routinely come back to dwell in the same paintings over and over again. There are some who just like to turn on the radio, and others who deeply cherish the same songs over decades. So since I'm expanding Lewis's view to be more than just reading, let's call literary people appreciators, and I'm going to call unliterary people consumers. A consumer is someone who doesn't think deeply about the art that they're enjoying. They just want the surface-level entertainment. But an appreciator is someone who really loves the art for its own sake, and as we've been talking about, really treasures art for, for the value that they get from it, and for the valuable thing that it is, not just for the sake of curing boredom. Now that Lewis has established these two categories of, of art appreciators, of, of people, he draws some very useful observations. The first, he says, is that consumers don't actually care about the art itself. They're consuming for themselves. The consumers are actually using the art to fulfill their own desires by importing their own ideas and conclusions and impressions about what they read. They don't mind a cliché, for example, because it gets the point across. They aren't looking for a colorful style or an interesting new take on a scene or a character. They just want the platonic form or the archetype so that they can fill in with their subconscious the details on their own. If it was an action movie, for example, they want their main character to be named Jack, or John, or James, or some other name that starts with a J. They don't care that it's always the same character, played by the same actors even, doing the same things, as long as they're taking names and kicking butt. It's the same with cheap romance novels or Hallmark movies. We understand certain categories and don't hardly notice the cliches or the repetitive storylines, because we are in it to fill the movie with our own experiences, not receive new ones. Lewis calls this egoistic castle building. He gives an example by telling the story of waiting at a bus stop and looking over his shoulder to see a poster, which was an advertisement for a brand of beer. The poster was a detailed drawing, perhaps somewhat defined as art just for that. The poster showed a man and a woman drinking beer and laughing. Now, most people would look at this poster and they get the gist of what it is communicating, and so the advertisement has done its job. The casual observer imports his ideas about parties, beer, laughter, fun, and they associate it with the beverage being advertised. End of story. But someone who's trying to examine this as a piece of art, an appreciator rather than a consumer, might really look at this poster and be immediately repulsed at how fake it is. It's ugly and intolerable, and the, the image is just ugly. The way the background glitters just seems artificial. The smiles are clearly fabricated. The foam from the beer looks more like soap. The two people are making unnatural eye contact. It's just ugly. There's nothing interesting or beautiful or good about the poster, and it actually wears you down to look at it over and over again. But most people don't even notice because they're just scanning the surface. They gather its message and move on. Now consider this idea applied to a young adult novel, or a solid B-grade action movie. A consumer is using the book or film in order to get the gist of it. That's why something is always happening. There always has to be an event. The characters can't be too complex. 
the viewer or the reader is not supposed to ask too many questions. You can also apply this to music. The majority of consumers don't want too many interludes. They don't want too many guitar solos. They don't really care about the lyrics. They just want the tune so that they can tap their foot or drum on the steering wheel next time the chorus comes around. So the consumers are really using the artwork in order to import their own ideas, extract the spark notes of the action, and save a few anecdotes or one-liners. The favorite criticism of the consumer is that the work is slow or long-winded. If they are entertained, they are satisfied, and if they are not, they discard the work and consider it bad. Contrast this with the appreciator, who is not interested in using a work, but in receiving it. They want whatever the artist has in store for them, whether it is to laugh or cry or be embittered or emboldened, or just to see as the artist sees. Whether consumers have all kinds of foreign motivations, perhaps even just to be able to say they have seen the movie or read the book for their social status, the true art appreciator wants to be temporarily enraptured in the art that they are experiencing. Here's a quote from Lewis on what appreciators are really looking for. This is really good. Typical Lewis. Quote, The nearest I have got to an answer is that we seek an enlargement of our being. We want to be more than ourselves. Each of us, by nature, sees the whole world from one point of view, with a perspective and selectiveness peculiar to himself. And even when we build disinterested fantasies, they are saturated with and limited by our own psychology. We want to see with other eyes, to imagine with other imaginations, to feel with other hearts, as well as with our own. We are not content to be Leibnizian monads. We demand windows. One of the things we feel after reading a great work is, I have got out, or from another point of view, I have got in, pierced the shell of some other monad and discovered what it is like inside. Good reading, therefore, though it is not essentially an affectional or moral or intellectual activity, has something in common with all three. Obviously, this process can be described either as an enlargement or as a temporary annihilation of the self. But that is an old paradox. He that loseth his life shall save it, end quote. So to recap, the unliterary, or consumers as I call them, use art for egoistic castle building. They don't notice cliches or cheap, easy, simple, monotonous aspects of the entertainment that they're consuming. They can't tell the difference between a masterpiece and motel art. They might even prefer the motel art or the C, B-level action movie. Indeed, they are consumers, not appreciators. They are using the work as a footstool to their own goals. A literary reader, or a true appreciator as I am calling them, is receiving the work. They don't want to just expand their imagination, they want to put on a new imagination. This process integrates their whole being and provides a temporary transcendence of your particular particularities into a new thought, a new life, and a new experience. So as we've seen, Lewis thinks that instead of focusing on abstract rules and principles to decide which books are good and which books are bad, we should instead focus on the kind of reading they inspire. If a true art appreciator can read a book and transcend themselves, truly love the work, cherish their favorite scenes, keep coming back over and over as the years go on, then perhaps the book is really a good book. But if true art appreciators don't really find it all that interesting, then the book is good only for consumers for surface-level enjoyment, good and useful for fulfilling its purpose, but then tossed aside like a newspaper. 
This is key in Lewis's system because he insists that if any work is deeply cherished by even one person who would object fiercely if one word was changed and he appreciates the work over and over again, each time loving it more than the last, then it must be possible that the work is actually a good work because it inspires great reading. If this person were to keep this opinion honestly throughout their entire lives, it might just be that that's a good work. The same can be said for movies or, 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 or architecture or whatever it is that, that suits your fancy. Aesthetics, then, is like falling in love. Saying someone is in love is akin to saying that he is an art appreciator, and saying that he has a bad taste is like saying that he is a lover who is infatuated with a frightful woman. Therefore, there is always a subjectivity involved. Perhaps our friend's mistress is plain, disagreeable, and stupid, and he loves her because he is irrational and full of hormones. Maybe he has projected his own psychological particularities onto this woman. We must admit, however, that it is also possible that there is something that we cannot see in her, something that is there, some, some kind of virtue or beauty that we have missed but that they recognize. In the same way, if someone is obsessed with a work of art, it may be that they are a true appreciator, and the work is therefore truly good, even though we don't see why they like it so much. But it could also be that the work is just kind of bad, and our friend is obsessing over something because they have projected their egoistic castle building onto it, and hidden its flaws so profoundly that they are blind and are only enjoying rather bad work without knowing it. But the reason this analogy is so powerful is because, like a lover full of vice who is rather plain and not a good match for your friend, eventually they will see it for what it is. But in the meantime, condemning a work is a very serious matter, because until years go by, it is very hard to say whether someone else sees something that you don't, or whether they have been projecting their needs and desires and biases onto their love. And that's why sometimes we watch an old movie or hear an old song and go, yeah, I guess this was not as good as I remembered. This system is brilliant because it accounts for all of our experiences in the fields of art and beauty. It even offers beautiful groundwork for understanding what a classic is or a great work of art, as opposed to just an ordinary one. So here's the tier list that I am applying. This isn't Lewis. I, I, I'm, I'm using this, but I think you'd agree with it. A work of art is fair if a lot of consumers enjoy it, but you can't really appreciate it on a deeper level. Maybe art isn't the right word for that. Entertainment? I'm not sure. Maybe Jack Reacher or Imagine Dragons or Tom Clancy is perfect for this kind of category. A work is considered good if it can inspire a deeper kind of appreciation, a transcendent experience which encourages true art appreciators to come back again and again, treasuring the work and keeping it close to their hearts all their lives. A work is considered great if true art appreciators across cultures and time eras are raptured by a work. If the work has devoted admirers and appreciators who treasure every page, savor every line, read and reread it as if it gets better every time, and as the decades pass, its influence is felt over other works which follow it, that is a great work, and it comes to be known as a classic. And again, this applies for any genre of art. I could be talking about paintings or film or just about anything. Lewis's understanding gives my philosophy of Christian art and beauty structure and form. 
It isn't all I have to say on the matter, but his solution to the subjectivity-objectivity problem, I think, is critical and unmatched. It explains good taste and bad taste. It offers a system for understanding and ranking art, and doesn't create any glaring flaws for snobs or elitists to take advantage of. Now let me highlight a few more implications and observations that C.S. Lewis makes, which I think are important. The first observation is that there's nothing wrong with being unliterary, or as I'm putting it, a consumer. Lewis is quick to say that there are many unliterary people who are far more virtuous, prudent, well-mannered, and in a word, good, who just don't have a refined taste for literature, or for our discussion, art in general. Conversely, Lewis points out that there are a lot of literary readers, or art appreciators, who are ignorant, warped, arrogant, prideful, snobbish, stunted, and rude. Furthermore, Lewis points out that people often convert between the groups. The person who was once an avid literary reader may have abandoned the pursuit, as we may discover to our disappointment during a reunion with a former classmate. Perhaps someone who you used to really bond over certain music over learns to grow and not really like it anymore, or not listen to music at all, or appreciate film, or whatever it is. Or someone who never appreciated art all their life may, in their 70s, come across some cherished work which stirs in them a deeper experience of appreciation and awe, and on that day, this person becomes a true art appreciator. So Lewis is careful to avoid snobbery in his theory of criticism, and I think that's a great strength of his paradigm. He can honestly say that there is nothing wrong with turning off your brain and enjoying a superhero movie, or turning on the radio and listening to the latest groovy beats, knowing full well that you'll be repulsed by them in six weeks. There's nothing wrong with liking shallow novels with their cheesy dialogue and one-dimensional characters. Lewis's contribution is simply to say that true art can do more than that. Great literature is more than entertaining, although it certainly isn't less. He also points out that all works can be read badly. You can read Homer and only see one-dimensional characters and just use it for egoistic castle building and inspiration for your Dungeons & Dragons game. It's possible to read Homer the same way you read a fantasy novel. Any book can be read by a shallow reader, but only great works can invite or compel a profound experience. The second observation that Lewis makes, which is connected to the last, is that once a work is beyond the pale, as Lewis says, all judgments become precarious and reversible. There can't be a total debunking or exposing of an author who has procured literary reading. You must understand that in Lewis's field of English literature, the experts are always trying to rip whatever is popular and praise this other group of authors, or expose this author for the sham that they really are, while treasuring these guys over here. All the books under discussion were written decades ago, and they all have been treasured by various readers. But the fad of whatever's popular right now to, to think that you're part of this elite club because you like these guys and not those guys, that was, <laughs> that was rampant. And so what Lewis says is, look, once an artist has gotten to the point where they have clearly touched people who deeply cherish the work and continue to throughout their lives, then it doesn't matter that there will be seasons where they are out of fashion or mocked by the predominant culture or the elites. In 10 years, public opinion might be completely reversed, and what was out of fashion now is in fashion then. His conclusion, then, is that as soon as an artist establishes themselves as being able to produce art that true art appreciators really love and cherish their whole lives, 
then that artist has, quote-unquote, made it. They have created something beyond the pale. It should be considered good, even if all the modern critics enjoy picking it apart. Don't worry about them. They're flimsy. They don't know what they're talking about. They're prejudiced. They're elitist. They're snobbish. It doesn't matter what they say, because in just a few years, they'll be saying exactly the opposite. Once a work is beyond the pale, judgments become precarious and reversible. Now, that's not to say that all judgments are precarious and reversible. Remember that the work has to inspire a certain kind of experience and love in the hearts of admirers to be considered good in the first place. But once it's there, it's there for good, because art is fundamentally a personal endeavor. Beauty is objective, art is personal. Lewis is not a subjectivist. He certainly says that some works are better than others, and some people have good taste or bad taste. But what he says is, quote, The real way of mending a man's taste is not to denigrate his present favorites, but to teach him how to enjoy something better, end quote. And that's where I'm going to come in and say that even though consumers are not worse people than appreciators by any stretch, they are missing out. They are missing out on the good life, or at least parts of the good life. Part of truly appreciating a work is wanting to share it with someone else, and I think those of us who do truly appreciate art should be bold in wanting to share that appreciation with others, because aesthetic appreciation is a part of what it means to be human. Even if the person you share it with ends up disliking it, and even thinking less of you for it, don't let that bother you. If you can see profound beauty, which others are blind to, that is their loss, and you should take pride in the sense that you can see something that others can't. It should be a profound experience to be able to share art with someone. As Lewis also says, part of enjoying art is sharing it. Part of enjoying art is seeing someone else enjoy it with you. So now that we have the core structure of Lewis's theory, and you can see how it all plays out, let me point out a sharp disagreement between Lewis and another Christian thinker who I deeply admire, Sir Philip Sidney. Sir Philip Sidney, a Puritan who we talked about in episode 11, titled Artists, Philosophers, and the Power of Narrative, says that the purpose of art is to teach and delight. Lewis disagrees, saying that this makes literature a category of knowledge or a subject of study for psychology. For Lewis, the purpose of art is not wisdom or maturity, because that makes art an instrumental good, serving the ends of psychology or philosophy. The purpose of art, on Lewis's view, is to transcend yourself and experience life as something greater. Here is how Lewis ends his book, and it's just perfect. I love this. Listen to what Lewis says about literature. Those of us who have been true readers all our life seldom realize the enormous extension of our being, which we owe to authors. We realize it best when we talk with an unliterary friend. He may be full of goodness and good sense, but he inhabits a tiny world. In it, we should be suffocated. The man who is contented only to be himself, and therefore less a self, is in prison. My own eyes are not enough for me. I will see through those of others. Reality, even seen through the eyes of many, is not enough. I will see what others have invented. Even the eyes of all humanity are not enough. I regret that the brutes cannot write books. Very gladly would I learn what face things present to a mouse or a bee. More gladly would I still appreciate the olfactory world charged with all the information and emotion it carries for a dog. 
literary experience heals the wound without undermining the privilege of individuality. There are mass emotions which heal the wound, but they destroy the privilege. In them, our separate selves are pooled and we sink back into the sub-individuality. But in reading great literature, I become a thousand men and yet remain myself. Like the night sky in the Greek poem, I see with a myriad of eyes, but it is still I who see. Here, as in worship, in love, in moral action, and in knowing, I transcend myself and am never more myself than when I do." End quote. What Lewis says is that art is supposed to take you out of yourself. But if you keep looking to literature to expand your thinking or learn a new truth or a life lesson, you're going to continually just see yourself because art is inherently ambiguous. You'll just see what you want to see, a byproduct of your own psychological cogs. The real goal of literature is to get out of yourself. So then here's the question. Sir Philip Sidney believed that literature should be valued as a powerful tool of education because it paints the good as beautiful and the evil as ugly, better than philosophy or history. But Lewis says that if you make literature a means to an end, whether that end is education or maturity or a life lesson, you're making it a stepping stool for something else, and that is to denigrate and misuse literature. Literature should not be considered a section of knowledge or a subject of psychology. Leave philosophy to the philosophers and deep answers to life's questions to the theologians. Great literature is not always teaching a lesson or imparting some wisdom. It's just about enjoying an experience. Lewis makes his case by pointing at tragedy as a genre. The point of tragedy, he says, is not to teach us something about what might happen to us if we have this or that character flaw. Nor is it to say that, despite all our pain, there is always a silver lining of transcendent meaning. In real life, this is not always what we see. Lewis writes, quote, No one denies that miseries with such a cause and such a close can occur in real life. But if tragedy is taken as a comment on life in the sense that we are meant to conclude from it, this is the typical or usual or ultimate form of human misery, then tragedy becomes wishful moonshine. Flaws in character do cause suffering, but bombs, bayonets, cancer, polio, dictators, road hogs, fluctuations in the value of money or in employment, and mere meaningless coincidence cause a great deal more. End quote. Lewis is arguing that the idea of literature delivering life lessons and pearls of wisdom is a conclusion made by critics, not by artists. And even if the lessons supposedly learned are valuable, it's like a preacher who makes a right point with the wrong text. The point of literature, according to Lewis, is to immerse yourself in a different world, not learn about this one. Now, if you learn something about the world, that's great. If you change your opinion, well and good. But don't reduce literature to ethics or religion or philosophy. So, what do we do when two titans, such as Sidney and Lewis, butt heads? Is literature a tool, or is it valuable in its own right? Well, let's think about it. I agree with Sidney that literature, or art more generally, can be a very powerful tool for teaching and delighting art appreciators. But I also agree with Lewis that it can fail at this. As Lewis said, there are true art appreciators who are warped, ignorant, and debased. Of course, Sidney agrees with that, and that's why he's arguing that Christians should actually go into the spheres of art, not shy away from it. Art appreciators can be more mature, although they are not necessarily so. So you could consider that a critique of Sidney, but he would accept that. Not all art teaches. 
On the other hand, I think art appreciation, seeing through the eyes of another, transcending yourself, as C.S. Lewis points out, is conducive for maturity. Not everyone grows by appreciating art, but learning about heroism and inheriting values from stories is far more effective than an ethics class or a history lecture. Human beings learn through admiration and mimicry, and arguably that is art, admiration and mimicry. So, to critique Lewis, I don't think it's demeaning to say that art can be used towards the end of maturity or instruction. But then you might ask, does art become propaganda because it's just a vessel for instruction? Well, I think not. Firstly, all art is going to imply a value structure. Even a still life says, hey, look at this fruit. But as long as the beauty stands more prominent than the message, it doesn't matter. It's possible that the good of teaching doesn't have to fight the good of delighting. Some art is more about delighting, and some is more about teaching. But if a work is all delight and no instruction, perhaps it's not really art. And if it's all in instruction and no delight, it's definitely not art. So I don't think these goods are necessarily in opposition. As the philosopher J.L. Ackrell points out, a good can be a final and a subordinate good at the same time. Putting in golf, for example, serves both as an end in itself and a means to the final end of playing golf. Literature and all art should not be seen only as a means to a greater end of maturity or gaining a life lesson. But surely it isn't demeaning to admit that true art appreciation can be a constituent of learning moral lessons or gaining proper moral development. Wherever you land on this, it is certainly interesting to see how Lewis and Sidney disagree. For Sidney, art is about learning to live well. For Lewis, art is about living an alternate life, if only for a moment. What do you think? Do you think art is fundamentally for self-transcendence, as Lewis describes? Or do you think it should play a role in our development as a person, as Sidney argues? So to conclude our time with Lewis, I think we have one last question of him. If you were to ask Lewis how to acquire good taste, what would he say? If you could ask him, how do you grow to enjoy the right books? How do you become a true literary reader or an art appreciator? What would he say? What Lewis would say is, stop trying so hard. Don't try to draw deep lessons or understand profound messages in what you read. Don't try so hard to evaluate the art that you're enjoying. Don't measure it by some arbitrary standard. Don't let some critic tell you what's supposed to be good or not good. Lewis doesn't doubt the legitimacy or delightfulness of critiquing art. He just doubts its necessity and usefulness. Just let the art capture you, and if you end up learning something or changing your mind, then great. But the more you read and the more you learn to practice reading in a way which takes you to another universe and lets you transcend your own petty imagination in favor of something totally other, then the more you'll learn that the best works of literature are there waiting for you, ready to take you on an adventure so vivid and real that only a mastermind could write it for you. And when you have found those pieces, then you get to cherish them forever. Thank you for listening to the Well-Read Christian Podcast.